have a small correction for this episode. There are no life insurance credits for Alberta or ANS credits for Alberta for this episode. All other credits are the same as I announced them at the beginning of the episode. Just no Alberta life or Alberta ANS credits. All other credits are unchanged. Thanks very much for listening or watching. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firm's corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. Every small town has its own real estate market and they're driven by essentially local drivers when it comes right down to it. There's a saying that says all real estate is local because you can't move it, which means that anything that is important to somebody in Medicine Hat with regards to real estate or real estate development or something like that, it may be the biggest news ever of the day in Medicine Hat, whereas somebody who's in Wetaskiwin wouldn't have any idea of what's going on. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking with my co-worker, John Howie. We're going to be talking about the real estate business, and that does mean a smattering of uh, insurance CE credits. So this isn't perfect in all jurisdictions for CE credits, so uh, uh, listen up for the CE credits here. So I don't believe this is going to get you CE credits in British Columbia. Um, I look forward to BC implementing its pre-accreditation or pre-approval regime because it'll clear up this kind of thing. Um, But this is not directly insurance talk. It's really financial planning stuff. So I don't think it'll qualify in BC. Maybe. Um, Alberta, uh, one life insurance, no accident sickness credits. Saskatchewan, I don't believe this would be good for a credit in Saskatchewan either. Uh, Manitoba, this would be good for a credit. Ontario, this would be good for a credit. Uh, We'll submit this for an IAS or Advocates credit. And on the financial planning side, um, we'll submit it for an FP Canada financial planning credit. Uh, We won't submit this for IROC or MFDA credits. Um, So the conversation here, of course, with John Howey, who um, built our real estate training brand. And uh, for those who have done the drive up and down the QE2 in um, Alberta, you'll see the uh, billboards there along Highway 2. There's three billboards for Rello. Um, really prominent. really looks uh, great, actually. I, I like driving by them. It's, uh, I think, a testament to the uh, level of commitment that We Know Training has to that real estate brand and just good blue and yellow, bright advertising. So, um, yeah, well done to our marketing team for that. 
All right, uh, the object for today, which I placed just out of reach, um, it's sort of a weird one, but it's my Dollar Shave Club subscription, my razor blades. And these razor blades, I've been buying Dollar Shave Club razor blades. I buy the second cheapest ones. Um, I need to shave uh, every day. I'm a daily shaver. I have, um, I, I can have a five o'clock shadow by about noon. Um, I find they're a great deal. Um, I'm not getting paid to promote them or anything like that, but I actually think there's a financial planning sort of tip here, um, and that is around subscription services. There are some subscription services that I think are worthwhile, and this is a good example. I think I spend $3.99, either $2.99 or $3.99 US a month, um, actually every second month on razor blades. Back in the day before I had this, used to have to go to Walmart or whatever, get somebody to unlock the safe. You know, they have razor blades in that safe because they're stolen so often, I guess, and drop 20 bucks on razor blades. Even if you buy them at Costco, they're not that much cheaper. So I think this is one subscription service that uh, that really pays off. Um, and I think that you know, we can look at those little cost-saving tips here and there. But, you know, to me, I'm probably saving roughly a hundred bucks a year um, by using that uh, subscription service. And I found it very good. I found customer service excellent and all that kind of stuff. You can tell it is their business model and they really live by it. Um, so razor blades. All right. Uh, we'll roll into the discussion then. Um, and after the discussion, I just want to talk about some upcoming episodes so thanks very much. And again, you'll hear um, John, uh, I think he's got a very similar approach, or maybe I have a very similar approach to him, to how we, uh, how we understand our, our industries. All right, I'm here today with John Howie. John is actually a, a co-worker of mine. Um, he's in the, if you look in the darkness behind John, that's a space where I sometimes spend some time. So I'm um, great to have you here today. John, can you give us a little intro, who you are, what you're doing, um, working alongside me, I guess? <laughs> sure, no problem. It's only dark behind me because it's early enough in the day that nobody else is in the office yet, just so you know. I am John Howie. I am the Director of Mortgages and Real Estate for, for We Know Training. And part of my task at We Know Training was to build a brand new real estate school called Rello. And we launched that in June of this year, and it's been in operation for a couple of months. It's offering pre-licensing education for anybody who wants to work as a real estate professional in the province of Alberta. Perfect. And you have an extensive background in education, John, much more than I ever had. Um, can you sort of go through your uh, curriculum vitae there? Well, you know, this might take up the entire podcast then, depending <laughs> on what time it takes, because I've been around for many, many years. I actually started my career off as a, as a uh, even before this, actually. I'm going to start, I'm going to dial the Wayback Machine all the way back for you. When I was in university, I had so much fun during the first year that I was told I should take a year off and, and go and find myself. They called it the Dean's Vacation List. It was one of those things. It was lots of fun. Um, I got a job at a law firm in downtown Calgary as a clerk. So I was actually the photocopy guy. I was the guy who would like deliver mail around in the cart and everything like that. It was a fantastic job for a 19-year-old kid. I got to wear a tie every day and go and hang around downtown. So much fun. While I was in that job, I got to know the technology we were using really well. They had a, a new accounting system. It's called the Pyramid Accounting System. And I was really good at it. So good that my boss said to me, you know what, John, you need to go and teach this to the secretaries. 
and you could call them secretaries at that time because that's how old I am, just to be clear. <laughs> you need to go and teach the secretaries how to use this pyramid accounting system. So I'm a 19-year-old kid and I've got a room of about 20, 20 legal professionals in a room and I'm teaching them how to use this, this accounting software. And I saw the little light bulb go on on top of somebody's head and I saw it go on on top of somebody else's head and I kind of went, holy cow, I'm getting a feeling of satisfaction I've never actually felt before. I think I know what I want to do with my life finally. It's like an epiphany, the, the, the heavens opened up and it's like, you know what? You're good at something. You finally found your thing. So I actually went back to university right then and uh, stayed at the law firm and worked there part-time going through university, but went back to school and became a high school English teacher. And I taught around Calgary for a little while. I actually did two years in Wetaskiwin and uh, ended up using my education degree to do all kinds of interesting things. I actually taught in the United Arab Emirates for a year. I taught in Monterey, Mexico for a year as an English immersion in an English immersion school and that type of thing. So I used my education degree and, and had lots of experience with that. And then I sort of got pulled into the corporate training world. And one of my uh, big corporate training jobs was the manager of education for the Calgary Real Estate Board. I was at the Calgary Real Estate Board when there was essentially a fight going on about licensing education in the province of Alberta. In the past, the Calgary Real Estate Board and the Provincial Association and the regulator all worked together and offered face-to-face -face training for anybody who wanted to be a real estate agent in Alberta. But the regulator made the decision to take all the training into their house and put it 100% online. So when they did that, it was essentially um, taking planned for budget monies from the, the provincial association and all the different boards and everything like that who would do a revenue split. So I was basically hired to try and fix the revenue problem through training, which is not the right way to go to training, but I was able to do it. So it was one of those things where I really got to know the industry very well. Um, as a part of that experience too, I got to essentially work in every single province in Canada because we were part of a lot of national initiatives. I worked, I've had a meeting at the, the only reason I can say every province in Canada is because I had a meeting in the airport port of Montreal one time. The rest of them were actually planned trips, but actually we did a cross-country trip to try and build up a national real estate presence. It was called uh, Revia. It was the Real Estate Knowledge Network. It's something from the distance past, which essentially failed because of technology issues and politics. Interesting. Yes. Uh, I think, I mean, uh, this is something I'd like to, you know, grill you about separately because this whole idea of education in regulated spaces, of course, this is where you know, I make mm -hmm. my living. It's why we're doing what we're doing today for continuing ed credits. Um, and uh, yeah, just, you know, watching what's happened with especially life insurance licensing in the 16 years that I've been here, I've seen this kind of same set of tensions, although thankfully, maybe not some of the same decisions happen. So mm -hmm. yeah. um, and essentially what's happened now in Alberta anyways, is the the Alberta um, regulator has kind of left that space, John. That's about right. Yeah, it's it's really interesting what's going on. Essentially, with the way with the way that it worked, the regulator took over all the real estate trading for the province of Alberta, all the pre licensing education for all the sectors, and the amount of money they make is a lot of money. They make a heck of a lot of money to the point where the regulator, as a nonprofit association, had just a gigantic war chest, which you're not allowed to do. So the province got involved and they tried to straighten everything out, and they got to the point where they said, you know, Rika, you've done a fantastic job with training for so many years. It is time to sort of open up the market 
market a little bit. Let's see what else is out there. Um, you're also a nonprofit. You need to to focus on your business. You need to essentially be like the police officer instead of a member-driven organization, which seems like it was kind of the path that they were on. So real estate, at the very least, is always changing, always evolving. And the training seems to go in cycles where it's the regulator, and then it's somebody else, then it's the regulator, then it's the provincial association. It just goes round and round and round. And, uh, you know, if we're going to talk about cycles, we might as well <laughs> talk about real estate cycles, John. So we are in this uh, kind of, how's that for a segue? Eh? I, should, I should get a segue award. <laughs> so um, we're in this weird kind of cycle right now, of course, where, um, you know, Vancouver and Toronto and Ottawa, Halifax, I know some other markets have really um, taken off over the last I don't know, whatever, six to 10 years, depending exactly where you are. Um, you and I, of course, you, you just uh, came out of Calgary, just bought a house in Edmonton. Um, I've been in Edmonton for a good long time. And what's, I guess, can you just give us a little rundown of the real estate market in Alberta today? Is that possible? Oh, sure. Yeah. And it is a, it is a fascinating market. And every little, every little jurisdiction, every small town has its own real estate market. And they're driven by essentially local drivers when it comes right down to it. There's a saying that says all real estate is local because you can't move it, which means that anything that is important to somebody in Medicine Hat with regards to real estate or real estate development or something like that, it may be the biggest news ever of the day in Medicine Hat, whereas somebody who's in Wetaskiwin wouldn't have any idea of what's going on. It's one of those one of those really interesting things. Um, the uh, the province's real estate market has been going up, has been really uh, becoming when it comes right up to it a, a buyer's market. So in real estate, you talk about a buyer's market versus a seller's market, and that sort of is driven by the basic economics of what's going on in the rest of the world when it comes right down to it. But if it's a buyer's market, that means there's lots and lots of inventory, and there's because of that, the prices go down. But it's a seller's market, that means there's not enough inventory, and the prices go up. So it's the kind of thing where it's almost like... Market forces have an impact on what's going on in real estate, and it starts a little bit of a trend. And it's almost like the price of real estate follows the trend, it chases it. So if the market's going down, real estate's everything else kind of gets pulled down when the market goes down. And then when the market goes to right back up, real estate kind of pulls back up. Both of these markets, buyer's markets and the seller's market, um, a person who is a good realtor can thrive in these markets. Because when it comes right down to it, if you're in a seller's market, then there's a specific type of activity which you can focus on. And if it's a buyer's market, there's a specific type of activity that you can focus on. There's a saying in real estate, they say, if you don't list, you don't last. So you need to have the listings in place when it's a seller's market. There's all kinds of little things like that. But when it comes right down to it, the province of Alberta's market has been going up and up and up. It's, it kind of goes up and then down a little bit, then up and then down a little bit, then up and then down a little bit. And they've been talking about the need for a correction for a long time. We're in a little bit of a dip right now, just at the start of one of these little dips. The market has been crazy for just about a year now. It's finally starting to cool off a little bit. Now, contributing to this sort of cyclicality, of course, um, is the condo issue in Edmonton and Calgary. Primarily, I think that's mostly where you see it. Yeah. And I think you and I both know quite a few people who are upside down on condos purchased, especially about 2007 to 2010 thereabouts, yeah. where you're still in a negative equity position. Can you talk about what has caused that, John? Do you have a, a sense for that? Well, you know, there's lots of things that can cause it. And when it comes right 
when it comes right down to it, an upside down issue is when you owe more on the house than it's actually worth. So when you bought the house, all the checks and balances were in place. There was the mortgage approval. There was a home inspection. There was probably an appraisal or something like that. So that was the value of the house at that given time. But after that, the market goes down. In condos, it didn't have the uh, the sort of seller's market bump that the rest of the market sort of had. So they sort of, the value of them sort of stayed the same. If something happens, like interest rates go up or something like that, then suddenly you more owe more on the house than it's actually worth. There's lots of things that can happen that can sort of impact it. You could be at the point where um, the... It usually has to be some common kind of external factor when it comes right down to it. It has to be something to do with the market or something to do with loans or something. It can be something that happens to somebody personally where they, they overextended themselves on some kind of a loan situation. But at the end of the day, it happens when somebody owes more money than it's worth. And I remember in the 80s when, when people were so upside down on their houses and things like that, people walking into the bank with their keys and dropping them on the desk and saying, there you go, I'll take the bankruptcy. See you in seven years. Yeah, the jingle mortgage and all that good stuff, right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. you have to think about it, how desperate somebody has to be to get to the point where their house, where they've had all these hopes and dreams and their family's memories and everything like that. And they basically say, you know what, I have no option here. I have to basically go and drop my keys off at the bank and rent and wait for this the interest rates to cool down again. So now going back to the the course, so you have the sort of introductory, that licensing real estate course. How much of this kind of thing is covered in that course? How much like market cyclicality and dealing with cyclicality and even, you know, you talk about individual circumstances. How much of that shows up in that that basic course? You know, it's actually, it, there's a surprising amount of, uh, of detail with regards to the economics of the situation, quite frankly, because realtors are going to have to explain these things to potential clients. The license in education in to become a realtor in the province of Alberta is is huge. It has more pages than the entire Harry Potter series. <laughs> like it's a gigantic chunk of training and it covers a heck of a lot of things, but it's really only the start of the learning for a real estate professional. When it comes right down to it, yes, it's a big bulk of training. You need to pass a test and we give you everything you need to pass that test, but your learning as a real estate professional needs to go on through your entire career. One of the one of the comments we've heard again and again and again about the license in education for realtors in the province of Alberta is that it teaches you to pass the test, but it doesn't really teach you how to run a real estate business. So it teaches you, gives you the knowledge and information you need to be able to be successful, to understand the rules of the road, for a perfect example. But you don't really get the experience. You don't really have the opportunity to learn all the things that you need to know about being a realtor. So the ongoing training is is absolutely needed. And it's something that we're doing at Rello to try and really pick up the slack. Uh, we, we provide the licensing education, which is comes from the regulator and it's all the things you absolutely need to know. And it tells you all the things you need to do to stay on the straight and narrow and be ethical and be a professional. Um, but the other side of it is how to run a real estate business and things like even how to fill out a, an enforceable listing contract. In the regulated training, it would tell you what a listing contract is, but it doesn't really say, okay, here's how you do it. Here's how you sit down and fill it out. Here's how you walk through it. Here's how you discuss all the different clauses and everything like that with our client. So we're adding those pieces on top of the regulated training just to try and give people more skills to be successful in the real estate industry. The real estate industry has about an 80% turnover rate over a five-year time frame. 
So 80% of people who will get into it are gone in five years. And I, I promise you, John, that the folks listening to this who got started taking their securities course or their life license course or their mutual funds course are all feeling this pain. They're all saying it's exactly what I went through too on the financial services side. I know I came into the business licensed, like I could sell a mutual fund or I could you know, have somebody fill out an insurance app. But I have no idea how to process business or how to actually even, you know, charge clients or whatever. There's yeah, so that that stuff, I think that's pretty universal. I think that probably most licensing training doesn't really teach you about operating a business. So now um you talked about Rello, which of course is the the brand name that uh, operates yeah. our real estate training. And um I really love this uh Rico system that you got going along with this. Can you talk about this a little bit, John? Sure. The Rico system is actually the home for all of the, the business skills types of things that we want to do, sort of the add-on to the licensing education. And it is the things like how to fill out an effective contract, how to incorporate your business, how to make sure you have the right insurance to be able to run your business. Um, it's essentially what we're trying to do is build a relationship with the realtors so they find value with us for the long term. So yes, there's the value in the licensing education. Most of that content came from the regulator and the regulator still runs the exam. But we want to try and give people the skills to put together an effective marketing plan or put together a good business plan to be able to run their, their real estate business. It's fascinating. A lot of the people who get into real estate don't even bother to do a business plan. And then their business fails. They don't even know what happened because they really had no plan to follow or anything. So those little things, those little skills, it's sort of, it's kind of like, it's not the licensing education. It's not the thou shalt kind of things, but it is the little things that make real estate, people who work in real estate considered professionals. If you know how to do all of the little things, right? If you're marketing well, if you're being ethical, if you're, you've set up your business for success, then you're deemed as a professional as opposed to somebody who's just, just jumped into the business and just flying by the seat of their pants. So speaking of that, that flying by the yeah. seat of your pants, this is in the life insurance side, this is common where somebody gets newly licensed and they'll have their friends and family list and companies are all good at this. They'll you know get you to put together your list of hundred people you can call to talk about life insurance. And life insurance, like real estate, is commission-driven. So it's very normal that that first year or two is very lucrative, actually, where you know you go and you kind of close all that friends and family business. Um, and then a lot of folks kind of, like you said, lack a business plan, don't really know what they're going to do after that. And that's where we see that attrition in the insurance space. Is that kind of a similar pattern? Like you, you, you get all the people you know? The exact same thing, the exact same thing in real estate. People get into real estate and they have high hopes and all these dreams and everything. And then they sell up, sell to their aunts and uncles and cousins and friends and everything. And they think, oh, this is the, the easiest job in the whole wide world. I can't believe how much I made for this. I'm going to go out and buy a Cadillac. And then they run out of friends and family. <laughs> and they still have the Cadillac <laughs> and the Cadillac payments because they didn't really make a plan. They didn't really have any idea what the long-term success was going to require. <laughs> And do you hear from folks, John, when they're struggling like that? Do you like, do they reach out to you and say, John, you know, I, I'm thinking of leaving the business or, you know, what do you do with the whatever 24, 36 month mark? Do you, do you get those conversations with your ex-students? 
I do actually. They call up every once in a while, or you run into them at random at the real estate event or something like that, and they will talk about how much they're struggling. And the first comment when somebody is struggling in real estate is, "Have you talked to your broker about it?" In order to work in real estate in the province of Alberta to sell residential or commercial or rural real estate, you need to report to a broker, and the broker is the one who's supposed to provide the most support. The broker is the one who's supposed to be there for your training. He's supposed to be the one who who helps you over the humps and make sure that you're on the right side. Because at the end of the day, the broker has responsibility. For it, legal responsibility for it. Uh, so if they aren't getting the support from their broker, it's probably because the broker is incredibly busy and being incredibly successful or may have a couple of agents. Uh, I've actually found that when it comes right down to it, people don't want to call their broker. They don't want to call and ask for help, which I don't understand. So that the first thing I said is you're paying this guy to be your support. And if he's not supporting you, if you're not being successful, this person, this broker, whoever it is, is the one you should call first. But we sort you of think, have that conversation. Yeah, do you think it's a question of like the illusion of success? Like if I call the broker and ask for help, then the, you know, it's obvious that I'm not doing as well as I, as a, I don't know, as outward appearances. Like is that what yeah. it is or? Yeah, it is. It's very much. They they have this persona that they built up with. They've sold to their aunt and uncle and all their friends and everything like that. And they have the nice suits and they've got the Cadillac. And suddenly it's like, oh, I'm not all that successful. I need some help. And a lot of times when people need help, they struggle to ask for help. Not me. I ask for help. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with saying, I don't know how to do this. But yeah, it is it is, uh, it is a, a struggle for them. Uh, but you know, when it, when it gets right down to it, when we actually get past the, the broker conversation where you have to talk, the, you're paying this person to provide your support, and we start talking about how to improve their business, there's several different ways you can go. But in a, when you're having this kind of a, a lighthearted conversation where you run into somebody, you don't have a lot of time to get into detail. So real estate has so many ways you can approach it. You can improve your marketing. You can, you can uh, start to do events. You can volunteer. But when it comes right down to it, it's about making connections. I've heard real estate described as a contact sport, which means you need to make contact, you need to stay in contact. And it can be by phone, by fax, by whatever you want, but you need to make contact and stay in contact. And when you do that, you're building trust, you're building relationships. And at the end of the day, when you look at the stats, success in real estate comes down to a numbers game. I need to talk to 114 people in order to find one solid lead that turns into a contract. I need to talk to 78 people to get 16 leads, which turns into one contract or something like that. So I started asking people the numbers game. You'd be surprised at how many of them don't even track their contacts. They don't, they aren't tracking it. So how can you actually measure your performance when you're not tracking your performance? And of course, they don't think about that type of thing when they're trying to be successful. Uh, they just want to get out there and start trying to do the work. They figure it's going to come their way through all the way that it did in the past. But you need to figure out a way to make contact with people. And again, we're going to have a whole bunch of life insurance folks who are <laughs> feeling this pain as they hear this. There is yeah. this kind of um, inverse of this now, not really on the life insurance side so much, but on the financial planning side of the business, um, where there's uh, this idea that, like, can you make a business work with 50 households or with 100 households or you know some number like that? And it's this uh, concept that, you kind of settle in and you don't spend so much to your so much your time in that contact sport element or all your contact sport stuff is with your existing clients and centers of influence so 
But, you know, and, it's, and it makes so much sense because your existing clients have already said yes to you and they're the ones who trust you and believe in you and they will be one of your best resources and they will be your best source for referrals. It's easier to, to get business with somebody who's already said yes than to grow it organically. Yeah, but that's tough on the real estate side, I'm guessing, because other than people who are big, like real estate investors, it's going to be hard to find that recurring revenue type of client on the real estate side, isn't it? It is. And one of the ways that, that we talk about how to do it, and this is something that isn't actually in the regulated content, but we do an add-on, is we talk about your sphere of influence. Right. You have your, your family of origin, your family people, but you have a sphere of influence, which may be the people that you are in the Legion with, or the people that you golf with, or the people that you run into at the grocery store or something like that. How do you actually contact that sphere of influence and do it in a way that still is professional so you're not the sleazy real estate guy but how do you actually work those spheres of influence and once you've completely worked that sphere of influence how do you transition to another one do you join another club do you move to another town sometimes people take drastic steps in order to be able to keep their business afloat Okay. Yeah, and I think about this. I, I have involvement in, and I'm I'm not Dutch. I have, but the Dutch Canadian club. I I have some tangential involvement here, and I think about a fellow there who, you know, he advertises in the newsletter and all that. But also, he he genuinely chips in on like he's involved in projects and he really puts his uh his mind to work. And you know, I think that's a good example of building that that sphere of influence, right? That's yeah. And then the, how to actually leverage it in a way that isn't. Hi, buy real estate. Hi, buy real estate. Hi, buy real estate. That's one of yeah. the big challenges. I was actually, I volunteered with a with a conference committee to try and help this conference out. And we were together for about six months on this project and you'd meet every week and touch base and everything. And there was a guy who was a workhorse on it. And then at the conference during the thank yous, the MC said, oh, and I'd like to thank Dave. And just so everybody knows, Dave has put in countless hours supporting this 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 conference for the college that we're working on and by the way dave's a realtor so if you need some real estate help go and talk to dave and it was that little drop in but everybody knew how much work that he's been doing he'd been emailing everybody he had spent so much time building the trust before anybody even knew he sold real estate he got six clients out of that and for for a real estate agent that's just about a year when it comes yeah. down some of them that's a year of success that's six six listings right that's solid. <laughs> exactly just yeah. like that <laughs> There you go. Now, can we get into some of the nitty gritty around actual real estate purchases and decisions and, and so forth, John? I'm, I think there'd be some value here for our listeners. Yeah. Okay. So I want to look at the first time home buyer. Um, okay. And the, the first time home buyer, um, this is somebody who you know may have worked with a financial planner, like you might have put together a home buyer's plan, or maybe now we're working with this uh, ridiculous uh, first time home savers account. Sure. Oh, yes. <laughs> not, not, not a huge fan of John, but whatever. Um, and, you know, now, and it's not even available yet, but might have this kind of conversation. You might have talked about budgeting a little bit. But what is the first time home buyer or maybe the planner advising that person not thinking about in terms of the true cost of buying a home? Uh, you know, the true cost of buying a home is interesting because you save up your for first time home buyer with the incentive plan, it's 5% down and that thing. So you save up all your money and you think that you're going to be good, but you don't really consider the other the other expenses that are part of a real estate transaction. Um, for example, you need to have some money for the lawyers and lawyer fees for the most part can be fairly reasonable unless something goes a little bit sideways. So you need to have the uh, 
it's it, I can't even really give you a number because I've heard some people do a flat fee for 750. I've heard there's flat fees of 1500. There's hourly rates for the lawyers and that type of thing. So the, the amount is all over. But that legal amount needs to have you need to have some back end to it just in case you run into trouble, because often the lawyers will discover something with uh, a trust fund or something about the mortgage underwriter, or there's a problem with the real property report or something like that. So the lawyer fees, you need to make sure you have some kind of contingency. <laughs> real property reports are another one that, uh, that catches people. Uh, there's a fee for it and it's a reasonable fee. It was like $700 or something like that. You need to have a real property report when you sell your home that actually confirms that everything on your home has been surveyed and has been correctly mapped out. Uh, if you have built a new fence on your land or something like that, you can't actually sell your home without updating the real property report. And the real property report will show things like where your sidewalks end as opposed to where the actual town property ends and what the actual boundaries of it are. So getting that real property report, it's another a little expense but the timing of it is something you need to plan for too just okay got the garbage guy outside my door here around out there it's i can't hear him john it's all good yeah, yeah. Sorry. yeah um but but yeah and the other piece of it is there there may be uh there may be some issues with the property having to do with that real property report, such as somebody built a fence six inches beyond where it was supposed to be or something like that. When those types of things happen, the lawyers basically say, okay, we can go ahead with this transaction, but we need to put an X amount of money aside. We need to put an extra hold back on of $10,000 just in case this legal issue ends up being bigger than a bread box. So it might be the kind of thing where you're in a transaction, you think everything's going fine. Then they discover that a garage's overhang is uh, over somebody's property line. And they say, this might cost this much money. You might need to tear it down because you didn't build it with a permit or something like that. There's all these sort of hidden expenses and a good realtor needs to know about those things. I always wonder about this. There's a house kitty corner to like our backyard um, yeah. where the, the fences are 16 inches apart. The backyard fences, there's like a 16 inch no man's land between. Yeah. And yeah. it's interesting because. Oh. Yes. Sorry. So uh, yeah, the, that's a good example, John, like all these things. Is there any way that the home buyer can forecast that kind of stuff? Well, there is, and a good realtor can help you with it. And a good realtor is actually going to have some other leads. I mean, there are things like home inspectors and property appraisals and the property surveys and title insurance and property insurance and all kinds of things like that, which that land transfer taxes. You need to make sure that you have the full conversation. As a, as a realtor, you need to absolutely know about all these things and your broker is going to give you templates and help you out with that type of thing. But communicating it to the client is really the piece where most of the real estate professionals kind of fall down. Like it always seems like when there's a bad review or something, it comes down to communication. The realtor didn't talk about the condo fees and let somebody know that the condo fees were going to be every single month. I mean, yes, you think that would be common sense, but occasionally people don't know about that. And if they aren't told by the realtor, then they blame the realtor. Yeah. You know, one from my previous volunteer experience that I saw people, and I saw a news article about this recently is the uh, school thing where you go into a new neighborhood and like the city has an area that's allocated for a school and so the realtor says oh that on that park over there there's going to be a school one day yep. when the reality is quite different from that <laughs> you know that's uh and it's not necessarily the realtor's fault i think that's just not understanding how school like, i didn't know any of this until i did some volunteer work in that space right so yeah 
Yeah, my, my wife and I lived in Auburn Bay in Calgary, and I drove by a gigantic vacant lot that said coming soon school for four years. Four right. years of school is coming soon. It was yeah. one of the reasons why we bought in the neighborhood. Neighborhood had lots of schools and lots of parks and everything like that, too. But yeah, every time I drove by, it's like coming soon. Not especially <laughs> <laughs> now you start to watch the provincial budgets for when that school yeah. actually gets approved, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that is one. I know, I don't know what about other provinces, by the, but I know in Alberta, that's a particular problem where you get that zoning is there, but the the actual outcome never comes about. So um, now what about home inspection? Uh, home inspection is interesting. Uh Real estate, for the most part, is a regulated environment, and it's regulated. It's a self-regulated environment, which means that the realtors got together and said, we need to manage this. We need to do better. We need to be seen as professionals. So they put all these rules in place. Home inspection is relatively new, uh, and it's not regulated. It's not self-regulated. It is licensed which means that instead of the province owning the examination piece of it and all the training and that type of thing, a uh, private company, you can go to a private company, you can take home inspection training, you get a license from them, and then the license goes to the province of Alberta and they say, yes, you're certified for it. So it's still managed, but it's not regulated like the real estate industry is. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I can't just call myself a home inspector. I do have to jump through some hoops to be a home inspector. Mm -hmm. Yes, you do have to jump through some hoops. In some places in the U.S., you don't actually even have to do any of that. You can just put out a sign that says, hi, I'm a home inspector. <laughs> so, right. yeah. Well, if this whole thing falls through for me, I'll look at that as a career option. So, As long as you have a little bit of construction knowledge, you can do it. And I think that the actual training program is about 100 hours for the training. So it's a fairly hefty training program. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You definitely wouldn't want me doing your plumbing, so maybe I'll pass. Um <laughs> Now, what about the initial ownership? So now you got into the house, you did the home inspection thing. What about maybe the first year or two of ownership? What what do we see go wrong here? Well, you know, um, there's there's a few things that can go wrong. Probably one of the biggest things that, that happens in the first sort of year of ownership is people discover something about the house that wasn't regular, wasn't immediately apparent. In real estate, for real estate professionals, the easiest way to not get into trouble is to disclose, 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 disclose. If you know something, you talk about it. If you say, hey, this is here, or this is on a floodplain, or just so you know, somebody was murdered here in 1974. But as long as you disclose it, you're doing your job. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that's, it's one of the things that people often don't do is they, they really don't disclose and it does get them into trouble. Um, sorry, I've lost my thread of where I was going because of my... Because <laughs> the murder thing. All right. Um, so the, yeah, it's this uh, these yeah. unexpected costs or whatever in that first year of ownership. Yeah. So yeah, it, the, the, when it comes right down to it, so the things you can see, the problems you can see are called patent defects. You can see the patent defects. You understand what's going on. It's very obvious to everybody. During the first year, you might run into some material latent defects, which means there could have been a water leak from one of the bathtubs upstairs or something like that, that they painted over and they didn't tell you about. And then in the first year, suddenly you start to smell something a little bit funny and there's black mold above the ceiling or something. Not your fault, not the realtor's fault, not the home inspector's fault, because a home inspection, they're not going to cut the roof off to see if there's a hole in there. So there are provisions within the Real Estate Act that basically say, if even if you don't know about it, somebody still has to pay for it. In real estate, they have errors in emissions insurance. They have a few things that will sort of cover the realtors in this kind of a practice. But quite often, the realtors end up having to pay for it. 
Like there have been times that where um, uh, as part of a contract, the realtor forgets to note that the backboard for a basketball net should be included in the contract or something. And then when the person moves into their new house, oh, I thought that there was going to be a basketball net and it's not there. And I thought this piece wasn't going to be not there. So there's things that sort of come out of the realtor's pocket because they didn't put it into the contract. These material latent defects, though, they can be a big deal. Um, if the realtor didn't see it, then he doesn't have any liability for it. The home inspector couldn't have seen it. So when it comes right down to it, it can be a huge hidden expense and involve a lawsuit to try and get reimbursed for the money you had to spend to fix this defect. And that's, of course, assuming that the person who sold the house knew about it. In the example of a bathtub that leaks, yeah, of course they're going to know about it. But if it's something that was a little bit lower, more insidious or it was something like, I don't know, bugs or, or mice in the wall or something like that, there's a lot of conversation about who actually has to pay for it, who assumes the liability of it, has to be decided by the courts. What about new home versus existing home? Like if you're the first owner of a home, does that change? Uh, it does a little bit, and you're mostly because you're covered under the warranty. There's the Alberta New Home Warranty Program, and each of the builders has their own warranty. For the first year in a home, they essentially, uh, in my experience anyways, for the first year in a home, a new builder will be there for you and give you a full year to come in and fix everything. In uh, one of the houses that I sold was a new house several years ago, and it had a beautiful curved wall beside a curved staircase. Curved drywall, not an easy thing to do. In the first year, one of the pieces of drywall started to slide a little bit. For whatever reason, it settled out, the ground settled, whatever it was. So this beautiful feature wall in this gorgeous, gorgeous home, the drywall was essentially tearing itself apart. The, yeah. the owner was in there, right, the builder was in there right away. So I don't know, we'll fix that for you, no problem whatsoever. We knew it was going to settle. We knew this was a possibility with one of these walls and on and on and on. But the builders, they, of course, believe in their products when you get a good one. They have their own warranties and they want to make sure that everything is covered. Is there anything a home buyer or the realtor can do? Like... Is this all reputational, picking a builder that is going to stand by what they've delivered? Is that is there any other way to do that? Well, there is the Alberta New Home Warranty Program, which provides an extra layer of protection. Uh, it is part of a caveat emptor kind of a situation. You need to do the buyer beware. You need to do your research. It's like hiring somebody to do your renovations. It's a little bit more regulated than that. But if you don't do your research, there's a chance you might sign on with a builder who is going to be bankrupt and be the business will be gone in six months or three months or something like that. And if that happens, you really have no recourse when your drywall starts to slip. So you have to really make sure you buy from a reputable builder that you believe in. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And do you see that? Is that the realtor's responsibility? Is that the home buyer's responsibility? Where does that fall? Well, it's actually really interesting because when you go through a builder, you don't have to use a realtor. A builder that's doesn't fair, yeah. have to actually have a real estate license to be able to sell a home because they're a manufacturer when it comes right down to it. It's interesting because the builders and usually the local real estate board will have an agreement so that the builder will still pay some kind of a commission to the selling realtor if that realtor brings the person to the new home. And it's usually pre-negotiated or it's usually right in line with what the usual commission structure is going to be. But it is an incentive to make sure that the that the realtor will still show the new homes. So the realtor, once again, he's he's going to have to make sure he's showing homes that are of a reputable quality and he should be able to go in and look with an objective eye to understand. So, you know, I've always, like, I've had this question come up before, you know, there's this idea that like DIY realtors or, you know, that kind of thing. And when you're buying a new home, then do you think people should be engaging a realtor instead of going directly through builder? 
Oh, that's a that's a really tough question. <laughs> okay, interesting. I assumed you were going to just say yes and move on, John. So, what makes it a tough question? You know, at, because I work in real estate, because I do think that realtors provide a heck of a lot of value, and they know so much more than than the person who doesn't deal in real estate all the time. It's always good to have a consultant who can be there and and can help you and help you navigate the transaction and the negotiations and everything like that too. However, you can just go in through a realtor or without a realtor to a to a new home builder and essentially buy a house without any kind of uh, interaction with a realtor or any kind of a stopgap, any kind of consulting. And, you know, it's relatively safe. It's relatively safe because the home builders, I mean, their businesses, they have their reputations. They have like the new home warranty association provides an extra level of savings and or extra level of protection. So it is one of those things where I think you're better off if you use a realtor. But if you fall in love with a home and you essentially go in and talk to the builder, you can usually have a fairly good experience. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just a simple yes. It's a, you know what? I would love to say that, yes, you absolutely positively must use a realtor every time, but home builders on the most part are solid businesses and they're ethical practitioners and they try and take care of the realtors. They try and play nice in the sandbox with everybody. So absolutely, buying directly from a builder is 100% a viable option. Okay. <laughs> and it depends answer, my favorite kind of answer. So well, it does. I t- yeah. yeah, I could have just said that instead of rambling on for two or three minutes. <laughs> nice. Um, well, I would have I would have forced the question no matter what. So now what about then um, the relationship between the, the realtor and the mortgage broker or whoever is originating the mortgage? You know, it's it's interesting because a realtor needs to have a gigantic team when it comes right down to it, because they aren't allowed to provide mortgage advice. They aren't allowed to do property inspections. They don't want to take on that liability. So they absolutely positively need to interact with a mortgage professional or the bank or something. The points of interaction are usually documents. Is this document in place? Is this person really approved for this much? Uh, uh, have we filled out all of the requirements in order to qualify for a mortgage to get into this home and that type of thing? So a realtor who is really looking after their client's best interest will make sure that they have some kind of a relationship with whoever's providing the mortgage. Uh, when a deal goes sideways, in my experience, over 10 years in this industry, more often than not, it's something to do with finances. And when it happens, quite frankly, almost nobody knows what the actual issue is because the lawyers take care of it or the mortgage broker takes care of it or the person who is dealing with the mortgage takes care of it. All you know is that something financial has held up this transaction. So a good realtor needs to interact with all of the support team. Okay. And they have a huge team too. Like a, to be an effective realtor, you need to have a solid mortgage broker. You need to have a home stager. You need to have a good home inspection team. You need to have a good marketing person. You need to have all the entire ecosystem. And yeah, I mean, that's the same again on the financial services side, that it really becomes about that team. And a big part of the value that uh, financial planners bring is that team approach. Yeah. So yeah, agreed. Okay. Um, now, what about, um, you know, getting into things like fixed rate, variable rate? Is this something, is that offside for the realtor to talk about? You know, it's, it is the kind of thing where the realtor should have just enough information to be able to still be seen as a professional, but know their limits. Because when a leer, when a, a realtor provides that type of financial advice to a client, the client takes it as gospel. The client basically feels like they're receiving legitimate financial advice. And realtors who do that 
get themselves into a lot of trouble and occasionally get sanctioned, occasionally gets fined, occasionally gets suspended because they're engaging in activities that aren't the activities of a licensed realtor. And that providing of mortgage advice gets a lot of people in trouble. And they do know the answers. They know the answers. They can answer them effectively. But are they providing advice in a in a some kind of a designated agency relationship or something. That's the gray area that gets them in trouble. Okay, that's fair. And it's interesting because that, that doesn't, I don't know, on the financial services side, it's, I mean, it can still get you into trouble, but we don't have clear boundaries around the kind of advice that can be delivered or not. So, well, that's, you know, m- most of the rules in real estate come from lawsuits. Uh, it's one of those things where realtors made enough mistakes and the lawsuits went against realtors enough that the self-regulated industry said, we need a rule for this and we need a rule for this as soon as possible. A perfect example is the residential measurement standard in Alberta. In Alberta, when you sell a house, you need to measure the house and those official measurements need to be part of the transaction and part of the legal documents. And if you don't do that, then you essentially can't close the deal. The reason it came about because there were so many lawsuits due to the misreporting of of square footage in condos or or the the title of a parking lot or something like that. There were so many lawsuits that they said, this is enough of an issue that we need to create a rule. It'll cost us less money to enforce it than it's costing the errors and emissions insurance to pay out the problems. Yeah. And I would say that that's, I mean, that's the same place that most of our rules come from too, as far as what you do and don't do. I think the big thing that we've seen on the insurance and financial services side is more so around like uh, disclosure of commissions or disclosure of how you're getting paid. But yeah, not so much on that creating a sort of fence around the kind of advice you can and cannot provide. So that's interesting. Um, Although some firms have rules, that is something you'll see is the the firms will say, like, never, ever talk to your client about their will or that kind of thing. So, yeah, (laughs) you know, that whole thing about about how you get money, that's a big problem in real estate, too. One of the one of the basic tenets of real estate is you cannot make secret profits. You cannot receive money without disclosing it to your client. So so if you went to a home builder and the home builder says, yeah, you bring somebody to show my house, I'm going to give you a hundred bucks on the side or something like that. That's big red flashing no lights for stuff like that. You cannot make secret profits. (laughs) Do you think that that kind of thing happens regularly? Or is, I don't mean. (laughs) If anybody's listening, it happens. It it happens. You know, it, it's actually, it's one of the whole things, one of the, I'm trying to remember if we talked about this on the last podcast or not, but when it comes right down to it, professionalism in the real estate industry is a huge, huge, huge issue. Probably about 10 years ago, Reader's Digest used to do a thing where they would publish their most trusted professions. And if they did the research into the most trusted professions, they're going to have the least trusted too. And the bottom five were lawyers, fundraisers, evangelists, used car salesmen, and realtors. So people don't trust the realtors. And obviously, there's a reason for it. And there's whatever the reason is, it could be 100 different reasons all combined together or something like that. But the trust of realtors is a problem. And one of the reasons that people don't trust them is because it's such a huge transaction with so many moving parts that they don't understand what happened. It's like, oh, I thought my house was going to be this much. And at the end of the day, I ended up paying an extra $15,000 because of disbursements and holdbacks and things like that. My realtor was terrible. So well, your realtor might just not have communicated well. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> the, yeah. uh, 
you know, that trust issue is, it's funny because you see the same thing on the life or the financial advisory side, right? Where people like financial advisory often also ranks low in those surveys. But what happens though, is people say financial advisory as a practice is low in that trust scale, but my financial advisor is very trustworthy, right? And very similar in real estate. Uh, But the ones who stay in it for more than five years have a huge amount of trust. They've built up their business to the point where it's self-sustaining. Those are the guys who get the, oh yeah, my real estate professional is fantastic. One of the basic problems with the industry is that 80% turnover rate over five years you don't really have enough time to become a true professional or an expert in your field. You're certainly not an expert in your field after taking the pre-license and education, just like you're not an expert driver as soon as you pass your driving test. It takes a little bit of time to get comfortable, to know all the different ins and outs and all the different things can impact it. It takes like two or three years before you really know what's going on. You don't know what you don't know for the first year or two. And that's where you build your professionalism. But sadly, that's where a lot of the people are checking out of the industry. So the turnover is one of the reasons why people don't trust their realtors. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I totally get that. Now, can we just talk briefly here about um, experienced homeowners? So, you know, this is you, like you, you just bought a place within the last year now, right? Or, you know, um, but somebody who has is in their third or fourth home and switching they're moving for work or moving because they you know, change location downsize upsize whatever it happens to be so what's different for that experienced home buyer versus the uh, first time home buyer no i think when it comes right down to it the first time you do anything is new and it's it's the largest transaction for most people in their entire lives is buying a house so the stress of it is gigantic and the first time you go through something like that, you're thinking about your entire future and what goes wrong. And I'm going to lose my deposit. I, I don't even know what the deposit is for. And everything gets so confused at the very beginning. After you've been through it once and you've had, hopefully it was a smooth transaction, even though it was a couple of bumps, because you've done it before, you know what to expect. You know whether or not you had a good realtor. You know what a good mortgage broker does. You know what to expect with regards to the closing costs and everything like that. So when you go through it the first time, it's scary and it's intimidating. And it's like I say, it's a huge purchase, which is one of the reasons why some people focus on first, first time buyers. Um, the experienced buyer is also going to have an understanding of what it requires to make the payments every month and knows the interest rates have already had an impact on their sale and that type of thing. And it's all just based on the experience. Um, I wouldn't say that I would recommend to anybody going into one of these transactions without a professional to help, without a lawyer or without a realtor or something like that. Yes, I know a heck of a lot about real estate, and this is what I do for a living. I still use the realtor to sell my house in Calgary just because I don't have the time to do it, and I don't have all of the infrastructure and support, and we're doing it in a hurry. So it was one of those things where it's like, I'm still going to use a realtor. I'm a licensed realtor. I'm going to use somebody else, mostly because of the time and the convenience and the requirement for the attention to detail and all the contracts and everything. You know, we bought with my daughter, we bought a condo a couple of years ago. My podcast listeners have heard this story and it's not an expensive, like it was only 130000 or $120,000 in that ballpark. And I, so I know that they're like the real estate agent made some commission on it but i i looked you know i i looked at the amount of work he put in mm-hmm. and the i think and what the approximate commission on that thing was and i think like i don't know that i would do that work for that john i thought for a, for a relatively small piece of property like that that's yeah. a lot of work 
Yeah. And, you know, it's the kind of thing in the real estate industry where for the most part, you hope your transactions are smooth and they don't take a lot of work. And that's one of the reasons why people don't trust them. It's like, oh, I put my house on the MLS and it sold in two days and my realtor got this huge check. It's like, okay, yes, for you, that doesn't really seem fair. What you don't understand is the other piece of the transaction where the realtor has to work on a $130,000 condo and ends up putting in 70 hours, just getting it to the point where they can get it ready for sale or something like that. So there's all the work that goes behind it. Yeah. I, ours, I don't think it was 70 hours, but, you know, I think like showed, uh, probably showed a 10 homes to our daughter and then, you know, three or four appointments at the house and then, you know, hand over like the, yeah, it, it was, it was a lot. And I know there's a bunch of stuff that happens where you're not even seeing the guy. So, but yeah. And, you know, and the other piece of it is like, there is no, there is no set amount for commissions or something like that, but there is kind of a, a, it's not even a standard in the province of Alberta and there can't be because of competition rules and that type of thing. There can be no collusion or anything, but sort of the standard that people have set upon is uh, the full commission is 7% on the first hundred thousand and 3% on the remaining. And then that gets split between the two realtors. So it's not like one person is getting that whole that gigantic amount. It gets split between the two realtors and the realtor pays for the photos and the realtor pays for all their signage and the realtor pays for all the marketing and the realtor pays for all the insurance and the realtor pays for the listing on the MLS. There's all kinds of hidden fees that you don't even know about. So at the end of the day, uh, the commission that guy got from his $130,000 sale was half of the total commission and probably just barely covered the costs. <laughs> Now, my I guess my last question for you, the last technical question I'm going to ask you today, anyways, John, is the um, that overlap. So you've you've left your house or you're leaving your house. You know, you have sort of possession of two homes concurrently. Mm-hmm. Is there anything there that um, that the realtor should be helping out with? Anything the home buyer should be thinking about while you're in that sort of transitional phase? You know, it's something that actually I heard about very recently uh, is the driver for this comment. Make sure that you have insurance. Make sure that you have insurance that goes beyond the take possession date. It's very important. If you if you own the home and you're selling it and the other person is supposed to be in the home by October 31st or something like that, have your insurance end on November 2nd or 3rd or something like that. There's tons and tons of stories of homes that have blown up while the closing is taking place and then whose home is in that type of thing. There's all kinds of stories about things going sideways. It's always important to make sure that you have enough of a buffer. That seems like one of those things that costs pennies to solve, but if you don't think yeah. about it, it, you know, potentially yeah. is a million dollar mistake, right? Yeah, so. very, very much so. It is one of those things where you, you, you hope it never happens, but it is one of those things where it just, it seems like it's common sense. The other piece of it is when you take possession of the home, make sure that you have insurance in place before you actually accept those keys, because the same kind of thing, oh, I'll just get it done at the end of the day, or it'll kick in tomorrow or something like that. And yes, 9,999 times out of a thousand out of 10,000, it's going to be fine, but every once in a while, something is going to happen. And same argument for pennies a day or for like $5 or $10, or whatever it is, you can really save yourself a gigantic amount of headaches and lawsuits and additional fees and everything, just to make sure that you're covered for that transition piece. That's a good example. And, you know, we have had, I've had a property and casualty insurance professional on before to talk about those gaps. And that's a great example of a gap that a financial planner should be aware of and can really i think nudge their client in the right direction so thanks there was actually there was a story in calgary a few years ago it was probably 15 or 20 years ago warehouse actually blew up in the middle of a transaction before the new person had taken possession they had all their insurance and everything but it's one of those cautionary tales that gets referred to again and again 
Yeah, that's fair. So my last question for you, John, then is, you know, talking to the financial advisors, financial planners who are listening, what should they tell their clients about their home buying decisions? What's the what's the thing that could could solve problems or or prepare clients better? You know, I think probably one of the biggest pieces is that it is the purchase of a home is the biggest transaction in most people's lives. So their stress levels are high, 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 high. And people who are doing it for the first time, it's exponentially increased. Like there's so much stress involved with it. There's so many emotions that are right on the surface because it's such a big number. I've I've been walking around with couples who are in the middle of like just complete crazy arguments while we're walking around houses about the house purchase at the time and they're walking around and they're opening cupboards and they're just sort of looking around while they're just sniping at each other i'm like what is going on here i'm terrified <laughs> it is such an emotional <laughs> event that, like just being aware of the human element i think is one of the key pieces and the for the financial advisors when when you're talking to somebody and they say they want to try and start thinking about buying a home or something like that make sure that they are they have everything in place make sure they're fully prepared they're fully armored against all the different things try and give them as much information as you can and help them to be prepared just to sort of manage that emotional piece yeah perfect that's uh, that's really great advice and that ties in very nicely with what we see in the financial planning curriculum today which is this idea that you know when people are under stress it's a suboptimal time to make other decisions so yes yeah 100 yeah. so yeah great advice john yeah um any parting words for us you know, I, I think that the uh, the financial planning world and the real estate world are, are very, very similar. And the more you and I talk, the more we discover how similar they are. So it's fascinating to understand that the two industries are almost, they're not walking hand in hand. They're on the same road side by side on parallel paths. I, I do think that there's an opportunity for this, a lot of learning between the two industries. So I hope that we can continue to explore it. And as a financial planner, talk to your realtor about this type of thing. Talk to them about the implications and who knows, you may expand your network a little bit. I 100% agree with that. I think financial planners should have a few real estate professionals in their centers of influence. And I know some who do, but I know lots who don't. So yeah. Great, yeah. great uh, finishing comments, John. Thanks so much for your time and uh, your. I love your positive approach. Like you just, you're always uh, so much fun to talk to you, John. So thanks. Oh, I really love talking to you too, Jason. Every time I talk to you, I learn something, even by mistake sometimes. So appreciate <laughs> that. Fair. Maybe not always a good thing, but you learn something, right? It's always so, something. Yeah. All right, thanks. I appreciate Perfect. it. Thanks so much. Great. Um, lots there. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. I think I'm going to have John back on. Uh, at some point. Uh, regardless of that, I do have two more guests upcoming for real estate. One I have booked for sure, and that's uh, Robert Klein. Um, Robert and I are going to talk about um, sort of commercial real estate business and real estate as a uh, cash flow generating business. Um, I look forward to having Robert on. Robert is, um, I don't know, I think. Uh, pretty aggressive. I'm I'm looking forward to, I think there'll be some people who have some comments about Robert's um, aggressive nature, uh, but he knows what he's doing. He's built himself a nice business on that sort of real estate uh, consulting side. So I look forward to having him on. And then I have a student who owns quite a few um, real estate um, rental units, and I'm going to have him on to talk about that as well. So the uh, yeah, the real estate side, I think there's some stuff to unpack there. It's not something we've talked about too much. Um, the um, number for today's episode is four. 
the number for today's episode is four. And then just to, uh, in terms of where we're at with the podcast, so this was a long season. Um, we sort of moved the seasons to overlap with the quarters. So, you know, I kind of like intuitively a September 1st start date for a new season, uh, but from a business planning cycle, um, October 1st, of course, is the start of Q4. So we're going to use that from now on as our season. So that's why season four is a very long season. Um, and then we'll start uh, season five with the first episode for October. So this is the last episode for season four. And that rolls us into um, season five. And we're going to be doing every quarter um, at least one CGIB Navigator co-branded podcast. So uh, Dave and I have an interview booked with a pharmacist for um, what will be part of Q1 of 20, sorry, Q4, I apologize, of uh, 2022. And I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a co-branded release, CGIB Navigator and CE Drive concurrently. Okay. Thanks, everybody, and uh, keep on learning. Thanks very much for joining us. You'll be able to do your quiz by creating an account and subscribing for $15 a month or $150 a year at businesscareercollege.com. Those who subscribe on an annual basis will also have access to three half-day continuing education seminars covering a variety of topics and capturing a range of different continuing education credit requirements. In order to get your credits for this episode, you'll have to do a short five-question quiz. You'll need the number that I went over just after the interview, the object that I displayed at the beginning of the interview, and you'll also have to recall a few details, nothing too challenging from the episode. Once you have completed the quiz, within the course where you did the quiz, you'll be able to click at the top right corner, and from there, you'll be able to choose the option to view wall certificate. That's how you'll see your CE credits. Hang on to that, although the system will hang on to it as well. I would like to acknowledge the efforts of a few people in getting this episode to air. Jocelyn Lord, Brenny Wong, and Sushami Pamela-Paket are the amazing marketing team at We Know Training, which is Business Career College's parent company. Sush also does our video content. Joseph Tong composed the theme music and does the sound editing for every episode, as well as uploads the episodes to all audio platforms. Maria Nguyen takes care of all our CE approvals. Thank you.